Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Truth to Power. My name is Justin Mogg. I'm one of the programmers here at Forward Radio. And the whole idea of this show is that every week we gather different programmers from around the station and different people from around the community to take on issues of the day. Uh, and I'm really excited to have in the virtual studio with me today a couple other programmers. We have Ruth Newman joining us from her home, host of Election Connection. Hey, Ruth, how are you today? I'm good. Good. I'm yeah. good. Glad to be here virtually. I'm glad we're getting you out of your house, quote unquote, today. Exactly. Yes. Also in the studio with us again is Hart Hagen, host of the Climate Report, and let's talk. Welcome, Hart. Hi, Justin. How are you? Great, Great to be here. Great. I'm excited to uh, be interviewing once again our our special guest with us. Actually, this time we've doubled the guests. We have with us the two co-founders of Beargrass Thunder, Jody. Dahmer and uh, Mariah Corso. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, you got it. Nailed oh. it. Thanks for having us. There's the cat. I forgot. <laughs> we have all kinds of mammals represented today yes, right. on Forward Radio because we're going to talk about nature and natural systems. And I guess we're going to probably focus more on plants than other things, but plants are the basis for the animals, right? And so Absolutely. It's, it's very appropriate that we have your cat joining us as well here on the air. <laughs> um, so y'all want to tell us about what Beargrass Thunder is and what, what you do and how long you've been around? Yeah, sure. Well, Beargrass Thunder was initially uh, just a concept. The concept started last year, uh, last February to be exact, mm -hmm. when we moved, when Mariah and I moved into Bashford Manor, mm -hmm. into an apartment building very close to a tributary of the South Fork of Beargrass Creek. And so what really sparked this whole company was we wanted to make the alley in the back of our apartment building just a little bit safer. Mm -hmm. And so we asked the Metro Council to help and what they really said was, well, you need to have it come from the community. You know, mm -hmm. we have the budget's tight. We don't know how to help. You need to find it within, you know, the, the residents. And even though a lot of these alley spaces can be public space, it's because they have a lot of tiny slices of private ownership that all butt up against them. Mm -hmm. So what we decided to do was we actually went door to door with coloring book pages and we had a laminating machine mm -hmm. and so we were able to actually generate from the neighbors about 60 different pieces of artwork that we were able to hang up within a week mm -hmm. and uh, once we hung up those artwork all the grandparents who were homebound in the neighborhood took their grandchildren out into the space because they both contributed to the art and so as a result of that, it single-handedly dropped the amount of crime and the amount of arrests in that alley space because there were so many more eyes on that street. Yeah, the, the art really made it feel more neat, and it also added like a piece of everyone from the community. A lot of people even dug maybe the old paintings that they had gotten from Goodwill or whatnot that didn't really get put up in the house anymore. Or, and stuff like that kind of made it out there. A lot of antique pieces and um, even like stuff I still had hanging around from high school that had been sitting in the closet. So uh, that was the first half of the Kemen's Alley project. And also Jody really did a lot by planting a bunch of native plants in the area too. And Fantastic. it really basically answered this issue of a food desert for the animals right. that were living there. But because the alley behind our apartment building, it had been built in the 1950s and mm -hmm. not maintained for about three decades. Mm -hmm. So we had all these cracks in the asphalt. People didn't feel safe parking back there. There were so many dips in the road and everything. So what do you do? Well, wherever there's a crack in the asphalt, that's perfect for planting something mm -hmm. because it's already there. You don't have to dig anything up. <laughs> yeah. And so we 
put in a bunch of sunflowers, and we actually documented 30 different species of birds wow. coming into the parking lot. And if it could happen in a parking lot, imagine what we could do in a neighborhood, right? I mean, eventually, um, just by planting so many seed-bearing plants and whatnot and kind of attracting those birds, we actually ended up seeing a hawk in the area. And wow. a lot of the residents that have been there for many, many years were shocked by the presence <laughs> of the animals. And so it goes to show that, you know, in neighborhoods, this was only a mile from the zoo. Mm -hmm. But the problem was that it was on the other side of 264 with no way to actually get direct access mm -hmm. to that area. So for a lot of residents, by just having that plants out there and having that art, that was as close as they could get to a public art space, a park, without a vehicle. And, mm -hmm. and so because of all that, those different concepts, a lot of other neighborhood groups started reaching out to Mariah and I specifically on, hey, could we maybe pay you to do this in our neighborhood? Yeah. And so that's how the business got started. So now we really go from neighborhood to neighborhood to try to figure out exactly what they want their alley to look mm -hmm. like. Because every alley is different. Yes. Wow. And I bet you were particularly effective, speaking of the differences of different alleys, right? Your alley is right there along Beargrass Creek. And we humans don't think of the creeks as like infrastructure, right? Like we don't think of mm -hmm. them as, as roadways, but the animals do, right? These are the flyways. Mm -hmm. These are how animals navigate our urban spaces, right? So of course, if you can make your area attractive to critters of all kinds when you're near a waterway, well, that's gold, right? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's kind of gotten us even into why are we using pesticides and why are those going into our creek and what are those doing to all the animals that mm -hmm. really could be adding to our community? Mm -hmm. And what we found was that for the longest time, the hotel was trying to do anything they could to prevent what they considered weeds. Yeah. from growing yeah and they thought that anything yeah. above two yeah. inches tall was unsightly <laughs> they thought neighbor residents wouldn't like it but the switch was when you switch all those 10 foot high johnson grass with 10 foot high sunflowers suddenly everybody loves it <laughs> even though it's, yeah it's not a weed if it's pretty right <laughs> so um what's really funny is that just because we decided to plant sunflowers and make that space they didn't have to spray chemicals that year. Wow. And so as a result, I think that there were more birds that would have been able to survive mm -hmm. in that space, you know, than if they had decided to just round up the whole area. Yeah. Can we talk about the whole ecological principle, uh, this idea that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? This just yeah. happened to me because with herbicides, because I'm a gorilla tree planter in our urban jungle, right? And there are all these empty tree wells all over the city. And anytime yes. I see one of those and then I see a little seedling coming up somewhere, I move it over into the tree well mm. and I try and weed around it and water, get it established. So I even put stakes up. And I did this around uh, the no middle school and, and manual high school recently on my commute, by bike commute to work at UofL. And someone just, you know, only had a hammer. And so they came through with their roundup oh. and just, they were spraying the fence line and decided to do everything in the tree well too, even though it was clearly staked right like this how can you how can you look at that and not see the goodness that someone's trying right that this is clearly intentional mm -hmm. right oh so yeah. i must find every weed and destroy it <laughs> if it's live Absolutely. i gotta kill it <laughs> this is something we're actually addressing in our newest alley project which is turning more to a concept but we have something going on now in Rolling street alley which is in shelby park which is in shelby park and we planted a number of donated crops from 
bok choy to cabbages to lettuce a to ton of tomatoes a lot of tomatoes cherry tomatoes large tomatoes you know and we were just wanted to see how it would do on the side of a building kind of this industrial mm -hmm. side so, and, and so we tried calling mm -hmm. the city and we said hey is there any help that you can give us we are trying to do urban agriculture on in, in an alley and the first question they asked was, well, have you tried vacant lots? I don't think that concept will go very well. I don't <laughs> think that'll be successful. Right. And so we did it because we got permission from the landowner and, mm -hmm. and everything else. And so uh, once we put that out, it was amazing to see that now they are trying to figure out what kind of permit best incorporates oh, that wow. use of the alley, right? Mm -hmm. it, because before that was a complete no-go. And now that we've done it and we've showed that we could actually theoretically cram 50 plants into a 200 foot stretch of place, mm -hmm. like that could feed a neighborhood yeah. mm -hmm. if you yeah. do it right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we want to show people that that's part of the ecosystem here. Part of the problem, though, that we're ending up having is we weeded it. We um, kind of made it a plot of land. We put everything out there. Um, but because Jody and I do work on volunteerism, you know, a grass chickweed, you know, normal kind of typical weeds kind of grew up around it. And now we're kind of having the issue of what the property manager is asking now, what is with the weeds? <laughs> and so the question is, what, what are the weeds, though? And um, now he kind of wants to perhaps go out and indiscriminately spray Roundup. So uh -huh. like with a hammer, everything's a nail. Mm -hmm. Uh, but when I look at the whole patch, I see a whole ecosystem, mm -hmm. weeds and plants and, and food and, and food for the butterflies and birds and whatnot. And um, we, we actually were able to document two mm -hmm. spicebush swallowtails out in our alley. We planted five spicebushes out there nice. just as a, a ornamental. And I was able to photograph two different butterflies that were now laying eggs in the alley. Three of the five bushes have eggs on them. Yeah. So it's really yeah. cool that just in the past three months, we were able to bring species that were functionally extinct in that neighborhood. Yeah. And then that's a draw for foot traffic, right? For people to walk through the alley and enjoy artwork, enjoy plants, enjoy insects, butterflies. And so that all in all creates a human plant ecosystem and not to mention that it downplays crime and mm. it, it mm -hmm. encourages interaction among people. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, the, the best way to experience an alley from what we found is that the more foot traffic you have, the more people complain about cars speeding yeah. because mm -hmm. that's another big issue in alleys because you either want uh, especially nowadays, you either want to get through an alley as fast as you can, mm -hmm. or you want to go into an alley to not be seen. And, and so, by putting up the art and the plants and whatnot, we're giving reason to slow down or perhaps even take the alley for reasons that aren't illicit or the legal know, dumping, especially legal dumping or anything like that. Just just to walk down the alley. You know, um, alley should be for people and, and for the communities that are around them to enjoy. And when we did the, the Kemmins Alley project, we don't live against the Roland Street Alley project. It's a very different one, perhaps, than our Kemmins ones. But because we lived at Kemmins, um, we knew all of our neighbors, which was wild. Really, truly. Like, it just, I, I, I didn't expect to know them. And we knew the people in our building. We knew the, some people in the buildings beside us. We knew people across the way. And it was all because we were outside so much. And yeah. mm -hmm. we were kind of available yeah. to be spoken to. And it created a sense of community that I didn't expect to get out of it. And that's the way people used to live in cities and I guess mm -hmm. in small towns too. 
people used to hang out outside on their porch or taking a walk down their their alleyway or whatever they had around them. And I think in this pandemic, we're especially reconnecting with that older way of being, right? When we're all told to yeah. stay at home and there's nothing to go out and do formally, uh, you know, people get sick now. They do have the, the, the internet, but they get sick of just, you know, watching Netflix or whatever and, and want to get outside and talk to people. And, and this is a way to do it in a in a socially distant safe way right Absolutely. exactly no one could ever say the pandemic is a good thing but if anything <laughs> good does come from the pandemic i do think it's utilizing our outside spaces in a way that we weren't honoring beforehand mm -hmm. and what what is really interesting is that most of the urban core of louisville was built before automobiles were invented Mm -hmm. And so all of the alleys uh, actually do a very good job of connecting the arterial roadways inside the neighborhood specifically. So, so what I mean by that is that for a pandemic where we all have to stay six feet apart, how can you cram everybody onto a four foot sidewalk on Bardstown Road or along Poplar Level? You know, if we utilize our alleys, yeah. then we got every resident as a way to spread out through the neighborhood and still get to where they need to go. With just more enjoyable. Oh, just, or just more enjoyable, you know, outdoor spaces for all of us to enjoy. I think, you know, as coronavirus happened and we all kind of saw an uptick of like um, walking outside, it was kind of this challenge of um, what do I do when I pass by people? How do I socially distance while I'm still on the appropriate like trails that are set out in parks or these um, appropriate public park spaces? And how can we kind of maybe perhaps bring in our own neighborhood into where we could walk and feel safe and use? You know, you mentioned earlier that like the only reason people go to alleys is if they're just trying to find a you know quick route through or if they're going there for illicit reasons. But alleys are also where we like hide the stuff, right? This is where we put our trash, right? And so yes. we don't want people to see how much trash we produce and we don't want to see the garbage men, right? We want that to be just somewhere else. Right? And so we use the alleys right. for that purpose. But I love this idea of reimagining them as vital spaces, right? That we all could, could actually treasure and use. And it just, it just takes a reimagining of, of how we do it. Um, and, and, oh, sorry. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, you know, especially with the, uh, with the commercial spaces, if we were able to bring outdoor patio seating and outdoor serving to the alley side, instead of having everything fixed on the parking lot side of things, you know, you got all of that space that is used for vehicles, right? Yeah. But when it's 100 degrees outside and people would rather, you know, uh, have something to do at the place of business, you know, underneath some shade yeah. or some patio seating, whatever else, you know, you have to kind of make this decision on do I want most do I want that parking lot to be for cars or do I want that parking lot and the alley extension to be for people? And what we're finding out is that a lot of the neighborhoods that are built around the alleys, they could probably actually serve more people if they converted their parking lot. Yeah, I had this exact experience last weekend when I went for brunch at Flora's Kitchen on Barrett 
uh, and and that's a great vegetarian restaurant, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. And and they've eliminated their indoor seating because of the pandemic. Uh, and I didn't even know they were like, oh, you can. I saw these two two tables out front in the blazing hot on the cramped sidewalk, right? And I thought that was the only option. And they were like, oh no, you haven't seen our secret backside. And it's of course <laughs> it's the alley side where I've never looked before. But there's trees. Right. They've got they've planted it up with some nice planter beds for veggies and other things herbs and uh it's just this lovely little garden all of a sudden now it's not like fancy but it doesn't need to be uh it's it's just a delightful space and it it almost felt like uh being welcomed into a secret you know underground uh it it almost felt like a little bit of a european experience like this has happened to me in europe where there's these magical little back corners you never knew about (laughs) and they really know how to use uh, all of the space in a city and i think that's you're right that like this pandemic is forcing us to kind of reimagine in all of these spaces right and and to to value people over cars and over parking and like what if what if we put people in a parking space you know (laughs) like think of how many restaurant customers we could we could have in a parking space. I noticed just in in pedaling through uh, uh, Schnitzelberg the other day that Monarch Beer Company has done that. They've put in barricades all down uh, the the what used to be street parking along their restaurant on the Hickory Street side, and it's now all outdoor al fresco, safer, more pleasant uh, dining. How cool is that? Have and you, you know, that so also awesome. slows down traffic. Yeah, and, that's you know pre-pandemic that would have been so many permits, so much red tape, so many no's, and um, <laughs> you know it's really interesting to think you know when need comes, what can we really change, and mm-hmm. what can we change our ideas about what our needs are as human beings here. And so you know that's that's part of what we're working on with Metro Council currently is that to do the alleys the way we want, we actually need to change a whole lot of ordinances, unfortunately, uh, because most of the ordinances are written by people who take a car to work, who have a lawn, who think it's normal to Mm. do that. And, you know, when we come in, especially at first, they kind of laughed us out of the room thinking that, you know, it's like, well, why would anybody want that? But what we've seen is a lot of gardeners and a lot of native plant enthusiasts really want some changes to happen Mm. uh, in the land development code. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually helping the lead a push to change some of the uh, crosswalk parts of it. There's no ways to actually paint a crosswalk across a state highway. It has to go through a $50,000 traffic study. Right. You know, you have to, you can only paint one color of paint on the road and that's white paint. So um, (laughs) so very, very hard to get approved. Yes. And anything else that you try to paint, the city will actually call the state government and the state government will come and tear it up. Yep. So, um, We've it's, seen that really, uh, when, when they tried to, to do some colorful crosswalks just here near the Hayburn building on 4th Street as kind of a, like a reclaim the streets a- effort uh, along 4th Street. Well, they came through and said, well, this is actually a state highway, even though it's clearly just a city road. right? Yes. Um, and, and you can't do anything not normal, right? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so funny to, that we, we were kind of touching on all of the big topics that Beargrass likes to think about because our other thing is talking about how many roads in some of our lower income communities are one way and are considered, unfortunately, state highways. Mm-hmm. And um, how many of those roads just in Louisville are state highways 
and kind of talking about maybe perhaps getting more control back into the city yeah. on how we need our transit and the cars that we do have to run and mm-hmm. perhaps the transit system. Because the, the, the only way people can safely use the alleys is if they feel safe crossing the street. Because if you use an alley and you feel unsafe crossing the street, you're not going to let your kids mm-hmm. or your grandparents go out there because you worry about their safety. Urban issues are just very, very different than rural issues. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you make a lot of city roads owned by the state, you run into issues where perhaps worlds can't quite understand the different needs. Yeah, because I mean, the state, you know, KYTC has got this sort of rural highway mindset about Mm -hmm. everything. And again, it's all they have is a hammer. So they, they apply the same designs and criteria to every state highway no matter where it is in the state well if you're in a countryside it's completely different needs from fourth street in Louisville or any, anywhere exactly. else in our downtown right our guests today here on truth to power are the co-founders of a great organization now company called beargrass thunder jody Dahmer and uh, mariah corso and I've, we've also got in the virtual studio with me justin mogg uh, ruth newman and hart hagen uh, i've been talking a lot hart did you have anything you wanted to ask these folks about Well, uh, it seems to me that this kind of lends itself to some scenarios where you might be able to close off the some some streets. I read recently, I don't know if it was Portland or Seattle, someplace out in the Northwest, where they decided to close off like a 20 block area, something like that. And so, you know, what would be possible? You know, is that a scenario that we can entertain? I think that would be like my ultimate dream for (laughs) our like our mile long alley project that we have that we kind of have in the works. And um, it's a alley that runs halfway through Smoketown and halfway through Shelby Park. And if we could get that closed off to vehicles, I think it would make an amazing thoroughfare down from West Broadway and kind of the Family Health Center all the way back up to Logan Street Market. And you know how exciting kind of that area is going right now. And it could be all bike, all pedestrian and kind of see what that would look like. So I would love that part. Yeah. <laughs> I would love it. And, and you know, the, the trick is you want to make sure that you can still, like if you are closing off the street, you don't want that to impact neighborhood connectivity because that is something that Louisville does not have a lot of. I, I do map making as a as a trade in my day job and so i actually did a whole series of maps mapping whether or not you can get from neighborhood to neighborhood in a straight line mm. and it turns out there are only two roads in the entire city of louisville that connect from the west end shawnee and chickasaw park to the east end in a straight line and that's broadway and oak street yep. and so yeah. um you know if, if we are able to use the roads we have but look at them and reimagine them in a different way. Whereas like there are some roads like Shelby Street, Oak Street, where it goes one way, two way, one way, two way, and it goes in a completely different direction in one neighborhood than it does in another. So if we're able to take some of these ideas that Beardgrass Thunder is talking about, but try to say it on a citywide level, saying like, hey, driving is fine, but wouldn't you rather have an, have cars be optional instead of mandatory like sweet 16 yeah you might be doing that once but do you really want a car for every single one of your kids once they turn 16 you know maybe you're just getting older and maybe driving isn't just something that you want to be dealing with a lot more of um it can be dangerous and scary and you know not everyone's a good driver and not everyone really wants to be out on the highway or out you know on the roads in a vehicle technically all the time but we feel kind of like that is a part of our independence 
and a part of kind of uh, how we're part of our community. But what if we didn't have to have that to have independence and community? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, everybody loves to complain about parking, but what if we didn't need it at all, right? There's also this related issue of ideally we would have neighborhoods in which we can live, work, play, and, you know, not have to leave the neighborhood so much just to eat, you know, have places where you can eat in the same neighborhood where you work in the same neighborhood where you live. Yes. It's also like, especially food dependency. You need to make sure that like my dream is to increase the biodiversity in every neighborhood. Mm. Like if we could make put in the ordinances that every neighborhood needs to be an arboretum aspect where like the pin, I mean, I mean, of, of course not every tree will survive in every area, but if we could say, Hey, instead of having a requirement <laughs> right now in the LDC where it's only two tree species mm. in a new development, let's at least make that 20. Because the next emerald ash borer that comes in, you know, if you only plant one tree, it's only a matter of time before something, some problem occurs. So let's, let's, you know, plan for the future now instead of just trying to plant the fastest thing. It seems to me that the, these biodiverse alleys that you're talking about seem to solve a number of problems at once. I've listed six. Um, so, you know. <laughs> so, oh, heart. You, know, <laughs> you absorb carbon. Things grow, so you're absorbing more carbon. You've got wildflowers. I mean, like when you don't mow, you just let things grow. You've got more wildflowers. You've got more trees. These wildflowers and trees absorb water, so there's less going into the sewer system. You've got uh, places for wildlife. And Dr. Doug Tallamy, who I get a lot of my cues from, says that even 15 minutes a day in nature yeah. it has comparable measurable benefits to mindfulness meditation. So when you're surrounded by nature instead of surrounded by sterile lawn, then that's, uh, you know, it's a whole big thing. Yeah, and I wanted to add to that the whole notion of diversity and sterile lawns. You know, people, they've been in the habit for many, many decades now of getting in their car, going to work, getting in their car, going to pick up the kids at school, getting in their car, going to shop, and never really having the opportunity to get out into the world, get out into nature, and interact with other people. And that is the way our cities are laid out now. And we've got shops, we've got, you know, malls and parking lots and institutional buildings where people go and spend all of their day. Now, what you're proposing seems to me is creating more opportunities for people to get outdoors and encounter each other, not be encapsulated in their cars where there is no form of communication or engagement other than accidents. Yes. <laughs> but when you're on a bicycle, when you're walking, you're out there. And that's the kind of thing that I'm hoping that during this pandemic, where we really are not going shopping that much, we're not getting in our cars that much, maybe some of this will start occurring to us that we really have a need to be out there engaging other people, encountering people, encountering our neighbors. And if we make places non-sterile... <laughs> more interesting, then there's more reason to be enjoying the outdoors, not just having to go to Bernheim, but actually in our own neighborhoods. And, and you know, the thing about Bernheim is those those birds migrate. So those same birds in Bernheim, they're going to fly over Louisville at some point. And, and vice versa. Bernheim needs to, to borrow our birds, butterflies and bees. Bernheim can't, you know, the wildlife that's there 
it's going to migrate. And, and uh, you know, there was a, a German study that showed that over a course of 40 years, there's like a 75% decline of insects in natural areas. Mm. But yeah, even, you know, these preserves, they're not completely isolated from, from all of the, you know, the chemical pesticides that we use. Absolutely. So just, just saying. Wind yep. blows, <laughs> unfortunately. Plus and Justin water was, runs and everything uh, is interconnected. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. And Justin was talking about, you know, the waterway. We don't think of the waterway as infrastructure, but, uh, the, you know, the waterways can either be clean or dirty. They, you can either eat the fish or not eat the fish. And uh, if the fi assuming the fish are edible, if you have uh, trees and wildflowers mm. that host insect populations, then though, you know, uh, another thing Dr. Talmy says is that like 40 or 50% of fish protein is derived from insects. So if you have habitat for insects, that eventually has a positive impact on the fish populations. And um, I have a personal uh, degree of resentment for the fact that you can't eat the fish out of the Ohio River or other waterways. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, how, how do you, wouldn't it be great if you could actually fish and eat what you mm -hmm. catch, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And part of the part of the problem that we run into, especially when we talk about Beergrass Creek, is that in a city like Louisville, where there are generations of generations of family that have grown up here, a lot of the older generations have seen Beargrass Creek as a place to dump. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's that was the dumping ground. That was the way that their grandfathers did it. And, you know, that's that's what it was. And so now that we're coming in and saying, hey, we want to make this better. And of course, we have momentum with the Army Corps study coming out soon and, and, you know, this federal money hopefully coming in to restore it. We really think that by just changing and marketing this as kind of an asset, instead of saying, oh, you know, I'm in District 4, I, you can also say I'm in a Beargrass Creek neighborhood. Mm. Because if we're able to visualize all of our neighborhoods as running along this waterway, anything upstream that someone dumps in is going to make it down eventually. I think two things I'd just like to put in on what Hart said is that one, yeah, I like to promote like the bugs are good and <laughs> yeah. that like in our Rolling Street Alley project, we might not be eating those vegetables, but a lot of bugs are and right. those bugs need food too. So I, I like the idea that everything is kind of being eaten by someone, even if it's right. not maybe a person. Hmm. Uh, and then the second thing I wanted to mention about fishing in the Ohio or just kind of maybe getting our food from a North local source is that I think that's an amazing sustainable way to kind of answer, you know, how can we eat meat or how can we eat just kind of in a clean or more sustainable way and eating local and in season is a way to kind of conditions on transporting that exactly. food and, and, exactly. and whatnot. So, you know, that just being able to feed yourself locally, I think is super important. And I'm glad that you brought that up. And it, it you know, it's, it's, there, there are places that will allow like, uh, rain gardens and wildflowers, but they don't allow you to grow food because mm -hmm. of the zoning regulations or whatever. But we need to be able to incorporate food, growing food, growing vegetables, especially vegetables have a lot of water in them. So it takes a lot of carbon to transport them over a, a distance. If we could grow our, grow food where we are, you know, you can have you know, uh, vegetables and you can have uh, fruit trees and nut trees, etc. We can get more in the habit of thinking of uh, every plot of soil is a place potentially to grow food. And every food scrap is a potential food 
that if it were composted correctly mm-hmm. or if <laughs> you have be, chickens could be recycled yeah could be recycled back onto people's property which doesn't happen that much it does happen in rural areas but it does not mm-hmm. happen in the cities mm-hmm. in restaurants we prepare our own food and that food ends up in the trash or in the sewage treatment plant rather than renutrifying the soil where it actually belongs mm-hmm. This is such a rich conversation. There's two things that we went over too fast that I want to go back and get a little more information about if I if I could. The most immediate thing was Jody mentioned an Army Corps of Engineers study that I don't know if I'm aware of and potential funding there. And then I also want to go back to connectivity of our streets. But first answer that about the Army Corps thing. Sure, sure. So the Army Corps of Engineers has actually partnered with MSD of August 15th, 2019, and they announced a partnership to restore to do a feasibility study, a three-year feasibility study. So we won't figure it out until 2021. Mm. But they both put in 1.5 million each for three million total to look at how to restore all three forks of Beargrass wow. Creek. So going South Fork, Middle Fork, and Muddy Fork wow. parallel to I-71. Now the implementation of that is going to be after the feasibility study, and that's probably going to be a source of federal and state grants, but because we've done the feasibility study now, we've actually unlocked potential federal funding later. Mm -hmm. So I really am excited because if we can get a lot of people on board now that own property along Beargrass Creek, Mm -hmm. you know, when this feasibility study comes out, we've already done some of the legwork, right? And then we've already moved that, uh, we've already moved that finish line a little bit closer, you know, so we don't have to wait two decades for, for something to happen. So, so it's, uh, you know, every little bit helps and we're really excited that the Army Corps is actually looking into to doing something because, you know, I don't know if you know, but Beargrass Creek, the South Fork, once it gets past the Louisville Zoo, it actually gets channelized into a concrete ditch. And so it's really hard to even slow down the water at all because it was built to channel that yeah. water out of the neighborhoods as fast as possible. So we're seeing a lot of uh, lack of birds and lack of biodiversity there. Uh, so anything would be great in District Court. Yeah, and it's a it's a concrete ditch near where I live, which gets to my other question uh, about the connectivity and your your post. First of all, I want to direct listeners to your awesome website, BeargrassThunder.com, and you have a neat thing going on right now called the Isolation Vacation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, with some, that is the current series of videos. Yeah, with some resources for folks. So I want you to talk about that too, but there's a post specifically, I guess it goes back to May, but a post about awkward maps. And the little image there, I'm looking, I'm like, hey, that's my neighborhood. So my house actually sits on on Lampton on a pedestrian court that intersects Lampton and Lampton Street used to connect with a bridge right across Beargrass Creek. And now, you know, it's kind of awkward for us to get in and out of our neighborhood. Oh, yeah. And I can talk a lot about that because I have tried to do research on that. You live at one of the three specific bridges that we like to talk about that used to exist back here in Louisville and no longer do. The bridges, from what our research has shown by contacting the Metro Council. As well as the archives at the U of L. Yeah, at yeah, U of L, yeah. yeah. So, so they've helped us out a lot. Um, Barbara Sackton Smith's office has helped us look up a lot of this information. But all the bridges used to be wooden, specifically in these three oh. neighborhoods. They were more farmer driven and built by the community.
community. Man, I've thought about stringing up a rope bridge, you know, just to, just for <laughs> like pedestrians yeah. only. And, and back in the day, it was all completely rural back then. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, the Catholics and the freed slaves that were pushed out of the city center, they were moved into the bottomland around Beargrass Creek. Mm-hmm. And so in order to connect across the creek, they actually built bridges themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, But the problem with that is that there's a lot of flooding, obviously, yes. that we still experience today around Beargrass Creek. So as the 1800s rolled on and whatnot, um, some of these bridges just couldn't be maintained by yeah. the community. And finally, in 1937, when the large uh, flood came through, the only one remaining, was it the one at Lambton Street? Yeah, it was Lambton. It was the one that you would live right by. That was the final one remaining. And the 1937 flood took out that yeah. bridge and... Many of the bridges that were in the more um, traditionally like white and affluent uh, neighborhoods as well. So the state came in with relief money to help rebuild a lot of these bridges. And the bridges that we rebuilt were Swan Street, Schiller Street, and Ellison Avenue. And those only connect white neighborhoods. And hmm. so then the three that we have mentioned before um, they were, were not rebuilt. Yes, and so we asked the state archives. The state has no records of those bridges actually existing. Um, And they actually also don't have any records of the planning process as to why Swan Street, Ellison Avenue, and Schiller Avenue were built. So everything was just, you know, it it is what it is. So we like to call it the awkward maps of Louisville (laughs) because we think it's a little awkward to talk about maybe why we rebuilt those bridges in our more affluent white neighborhoods and we kind of let down um some of our lesser mm-hmm. our, our not lesser community but our lower income and, and lesser viewed upon well, people in our city who should have been taken care of as well you know, um it also highlights a lot of those one-way streets that we like yes. to talk about that are four lanes wide and, and owned only, by the state the yep. state and they only start turning one way at beargrass creek yep yep so um like it's very interesting because when we go to uh, we, we like to talk about this to as many council people that will mm-hmm. listen. Yeah. And what we have found is that when you talk to uh, council people from a more affluent area of town, um, like when, when I mentioned this to District 8, Brandon Cohn, he actually mentioned that Breckenridge Road, Breckenridge Street was a bad example because it is two-way. And, and in his neighborhood, it is. <laughs> yes. Not in mine. <laughs> yes, yes. So, exactly. It's, it's, so it's just kind of, um, you know, we want each one of our neighborhoods to be livable and amazing and be yeah. able to have that community. And but connected. it's kind of like what happens when maybe some of our community neighborhoods aren't, aren't financially stable and that you need to get out of those communities to get items, but we have persistently made it our travel and our roads in a way to make it difficult for those communities to get into these other areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it all, it all comes down to accessibility and we want to make sure that every neighborhood can be functionally independent when it comes to sourcing food. Mm-hmm. Like mm. that, if we can make that happen and if we can use alleys and if we can use the public spaces that we already have to do it, I mean, like it, it's, I like to say that, that, uh, 
you know, agriculture grows on you after a while, you know. <laughs> Jody and Mariah for mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you for uh, bringing up our website. And also, if you guys like anything that we've talked about today, we also do have a series of YouTube videos. About 30 hours worth. About 30 hours worth of stuff. And always, um, we're always trying to put out new stuff. Like I said before, our series now is called The Isolation Vacation. Just trying to put out some um, content on things and educational content on what we can do during the pandemic and whatnot. I can vouch for the fact that it's all very professionally done. When they get to a part that you think might be boring, you have Jody walking real fast, like <laughs> pass forward past that part of the video so you can get to the meat of the matter. Oh my gosh. No, I, I, it, it's, it's honestly very entertaining for us. Mm -hmm. You know, this has been our very, this has been a creative outlet for us, yeah. you know, during pandemic and during COVID we, we really just, like it's been, it's been hard, yeah. you know? So, so I mean, we've really expanded what we did. We started with one little alley um, that we just was behind our house and kind of wanted to make safer, honestly, for us and our neighbors. And it's turned into a whole YouTube channel. And honestly, we like to include all of these different topics we've touched on today because we believe in making Louisville better and we want all of Louisville to be better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, the, the last thing I, I want to say about it is that all of these concepts are also very cheap to implement uh -huh. most of the artwork were used by sourcing donated goods we actually have been contacted by youth build louisville on potentially getting uh, like teaching these concepts to teenagers and then the teenagers can actually make the art concepts yeah. themselves you and know? even though we're we're licensed as a business we've yet to accept any money and we've done everything off of volunteerism and donations so far so we definitely in intend to keep forward with that and any of the money that we eventually do profit we hope to just keep putting into the alleys mm -hmm. that we are doing like so, so, jo so jody and mariah when you're mayor what are you going to do to your neighborhood and surrounding <laughs> neighborhoods well, two-way streets two-way streets yeah. for sure and and also i'm gonna paint a crosswalk on every alley in this city like i'm Ooh. telling you i'm gonna put bright colors on i'm gonna make it rainbow it's gonna be gorgeous <laughs> and it's gonna be legal i think <laughs> i think really looks at ourselves and we we kind of go forward into reimagining these alleyway spaces and perhaps and lawns, what, and, lawns and just kind of what community can be for louisville altogether. I do think that, you know, ultimately um, that that's like our dream for, for Louisville, just to kind of make it an, a new age city that's going to be post-pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we have a real opportunity here to to create a new place in a new city that, that Louisville's never seen. And I think that we could all enjoy. Mm -hmm. and if we can make it maybe instead of a city of parks, why don't we just make the whole city a park? Why don't yeah. we just make the whole city a forest or a prairie or, you know, different areas have different rainfall. But... And unfortunately, as, as uh, you know, global warming keeps going, <laughs> that does mean that Louisville, where we are, we are going to experience this increase of um, tropical plants that may start to, you know, uh, be viable here and citrus fruits and whatnot that we could explore. You know, it's all about the balance between keeping things native and making sure that something's using it. Bugs are pollinating it. Something is eating it and um, trying to keep out invasives, but also maybe exploring what the change of climate can do for our community and our outdoor spaces. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Truth to Power here on Forward Radio, and we're talking with the co-founders of Beargrass Thunder, Jody Dahmer and Mariah Corso. And you can find out more about them at beargrassthunder.com. Check out their over 30 hours of videos in the isolation vacation. Uh, take some virtual walks through alleys and local parks and things like that. Uh, it's a great way to get to know hidden treasures in your city. Uh, and they've got a great a bunch of great posts on their website, too, about all kinds of uh, hidden gems and things you might not have known. Uh, we're talking about rewilding the city and revaluing public spaces uh, and, and really thinking of our city as a, as a commons, right? It's a public commons, and our streets are public commons. And, you know, the, the chants we hear down at, at Injustice Square now are, whose streets are streets? And I always yes. particularly love that one, because that's how I feel every time I'm on a bicycle on our yeah. streets. Right? Yes. <laughs> And when I hear that, you know, I know that some people, unfortunately in Louisville, when they hear whose streets are streets, they think that the streets belong to everyone. But really, I think that's what that chance about. That whose means. streets are these? They're all ours. Yeah. They're our public streets. They're every Louisville citizens. Everyone is here to enjoy them. And Even I, if you don't have a car. Yeah. yeah. And I think yes. it's for, you know, for every race, creed, religion, color, like, like these streets are our streets and we really need to reclaim them and what we can use them for. So when uh, when CC the cat is vice mayor, yeah. <laughs> then, then her, her special project is going to be to get rid of chemical pesticides because when she uh, uh, eats a mouse that's been uh, ingesting chemical pesticides, then CC gets sick. Absolutely, um, and Hart, that's actually a great thing to bring up because we actually. <laughs> The reason we have two cats, CC and BW, and they're both elderly. <laughs> and actually, we adopted them um, from the outdoors. They spent the first eight years of their lives outside and unfortunately are both um, on their way out now. They're mm -hmm. old. They've enjoyed being inside with us last two years so, so much. Mm -hmm. But we are very, much, very convinced that because they did drink out of a creek that they mm -hmm. lived nearby and only had access to water that was in an HOA, in an HOA that was a chemically treated lawn, we do think that 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 their lives are ending much, much sooner. Because you're absolutely right. I think everything that they consumed and everything they drank out had, um, unfortunately, poison in it. And, uh, you know, we can also, that's just a great, great point to think that, you know, when we put that poison out there, it really does affect everything and from the bugs to the birds to our, you know, our little kitties that, uh, hmm. you know, our community kitties out there. And, and that's that's awesome. Some people that love their chemical pesticides and they, they don't feel at home if they're not breathing their chemical pesticides. So we recommend trying today? to buy dragonflies. Yes. Yes. If you can do, uh, if you can do something like, well, one thing that we've actually had a lot of success with is when you mention changing lawns, mm -hmm. especially when someone knows someone who owns a lawn care company, mm -hmm. they get very scared that you are saying ban that business. Mm -hmm. And so Which we do not want to get rid of lawn care companies at all. We just maybe want lawn care companies to ask themselves what other services could they yeah. provide people? They have right. aerating machines. They could, cut prairie grass, they could do all these different services that they could then partner with native plant nurseries to mm. fulfill. But the most important thing is we want lawns to be optional. Mm -hmm. You know, like the, the most important thing for us is when someone says, hey, I don't want to get rid of my lawn, I say, how much of the lawn do you use? Right. 
the lawn do you go outside in the summer and actually use? Because there is lawn that is just purpose for lawn, for play, for enjoyment. You know, we mm. have lots of good memories of eating outside in lawns and hanging out with our friends around fires and enjoying those outdoor spaces. But how much of your lawn do you really use? And how much of it maybe are you taking care of just for the sake of taking care of it? And that could be, you know, all these other options that we've discussed throughout the, the podcast. Mm -hmm. our, our I'm going to assume that there's some equivalency between the time and money that it takes to care for a native plant lawn and the time and money it takes to care for a, a, a perfect lawn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, we have immigrants coming from countries where, you know, two, two million farmers have been put out of business by NAFTA in the last 30 years. You have people who have uh, experience if I have farming experience and then they come up here and they're on the back of the mower, I think that's a waste of talent mm -hmm. and, and expertise. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we need to be training people to, uh, you know, to weed, you know, you have to know some plant identification skills, et cetera, but it's just, yes, labor is needed, but it's a different kind of labor and it's healthier and it doesn't have to be a darn bit more expensive for the homeowner. Mm -hmm. And and if we're talking about, you know, the expense of the homeowner, especially in the areas that flood around Beargrass Creek, well, if you look at, you know, the cities is a very interesting concept because their agricultural use, they only think that you can grow grass. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you take, ask anybody from a rural area in Kentucky, oh, hey, I have a lot of flooding on my, on my stream bank. They don't see that as a bad thing. That's bottomland, <laughs> right? You know, like. Well, yeah, I mean, of course it floods. That's what a creek does. Right. Like, you know, so if you were theoretically able to lease out your land in order to farm it, you know, if you're able to bring these agricultural practices into the city, assuming the soil's good and you test it and all these other variables, think about that revenue stream that you could use instead of just, you know, clear cutting every week. Yeah, and all the in just putting in, you know, like we've said, I think throughout here, you know, putting down roots, you know, helps reduce flooding. You know that the, our typical lawn, the grass that we have and we're we're familiar with, has very very shallow roots, and um, so a lot of other native plants and native grasses that you could put in and have a lot less, um, you know, perhaps. Uh, upkeep to do so therefore it keeps the cost down and comparable you know would have deeper root systems that could help prevent some of this flooding i'm curious to know whether there are any maps of these kinds of natural gardens mm. around town that could be demonstrations so that people could go and visit and and just see what's possible here in louisville mm. yeah, that's a really good idea uh, honestly Hart, if you want me to help you with the wild one survey i got the map skills i just need to you know get a couple data points i really think that could be something really beneficial yeah sure, and, i'd um, love to work on that so you know there's monarch way station there's like monarch way stations there's the pollinator partnership you, you have like three or four different registries of those things and there's National Wildlife Federation, Kentucky Waterways Alliance is the official uh, representative of National Wildlife Federation. You have National Wildlife Federation registered, uh, what do you call it? Registered wildlife, ha backyard habitats, that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of data to get started. And it would be good for students too, because they wouldn't have to be in a classroom. They could be going in their classes mm. outside and visiting these areas and learning. Right. 
all the biology, the mathematics, the all of the various skills that they would meet, need learning about how to how to create these themselves. Absolutely. We actually have a big fan of ours. Um, you think she mind if I drop her name? Then Melanie Milburn, she does a great job. She actually runs an outdoor school for um, a homeschooled children. She brings them together and she, you know, she does exactly what you're talking about, Ruth. And I think that it could be beneficial for so many more children too, because they go out and they, they pick up garbage and sometimes they check out different parks and she just does amazing work. I recommend looking into it. And imagine if we could actually do some agricultural concepts here. If I could teach an elementary school student how to make root cuttings or how to make how to propagate plants and then every year we do some kind of seed bank project where they just go into their backyard and harvest acorns bring it in then if we get scaled at on the entire elementary school we got an entire sustainable way for every you know, family to be able to bring those seeds back home. And bringing it back around all the way to our art alleys, we really want, <laughs> we really also would like to include students and we're working with Youth Build a little bit to hopefully get groups of students who have interest in art to kind of help us do some of maybe these um, garage murals that we're looking into. And the hopes that, you know, we really change the perspective, uh, perception of like, what is graffiti and how can you be empowered to make your neighborhood more beautiful? Without getting in trouble for it. And kind of give right. them a little portfolio. Uh, Jody, you were saying that people are more likely to get arrested if they have, uh, like, uh, uh, the cops are more likely to check you out if you have, uh, you know, if you don't mow, or even if you're growing wildfires. It's, it's, the safe thing is to mow, even if you're mm -hmm. eliminating wildfires and tree seedlings. Like, yes. what, what's the, Tell, tell us more about that. So, so what we're seeing is that in this review of the LDC, the Land Development Code, the current restrictions that they have are that they cannot have any plant more than 10 inches high. Mm -hmm. And anything that is a quote-unquote noxious weed is not allowed. And then it's up to the code enforcement official to make the final judgment as to what codes are being broken and what fines to give out. Hmm. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is that a lot of the gardeners in District 4 or in poorer neighborhoods, they could grow a garden, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. if the if the if it gets too high, what is looking like a native plant garden to them, all their neighbors call it abandoned property. And mm -hmm. so then they call the cops saying that they see people coming in and out of abandoned property. <laughs> and so, but, but that's a real, that's a real, very real concern. Different, you know, perceptions of what beauty is and what taking care of something is. And I think, you know, as we've all seen, native plants can get wild. And until we've kind of have an enforceable code that's that not at the arbitration of one person, you know, uh, you know, coming out to your house to decide whether it looks manicured or not, um, you know, there there is that fear that if you're not keeping things looking tidy and neat, that you know you could be reported, you know, mm -hmm. and I know that there's people who have wild gardens, you know, that mm -hmm. we've talked to even in more affluent neighbors who have had their neighbors down the street kind of complain about them and talk about, you know, they're lowering, they spend so much time manicuring their lawn. So mm -hmm. their and, wild neighborhood yard mm -hmm. is ruining the value of their house. You know, it's two very wildly different views of, of what is beautiful. Yes. And, 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 and one my thing, generation, in my generation, if you, uh, 
didn't mow your lawn, you were a communist. It's the American way. And and you know what? Uh, what is really really awkward about especially finding poorer neighborhoods is that when you say, "Hey, you need to mow this," with what mower? You know, like like a lot of times, uh, lawn lawn equipment's very expensive. Or um, let's say maybe you're you're unfortunately very elderly, and it's been very yeah. hot outside, and you're on a fixed income. You know, uh, who who do you have available to you to come out to pay to do this? This lawn work, you, you know, could do it yourself, but you get heat stroke. Stroke, you know, <laughs> and you know, you it's all about your your limited funds, perhaps. Yeah, it's like you know, it's about making more options available mm. to more people. And, and so, and so, what what I always like to say is that you know, if you did the same code enforcement in rural Kentucky, that farmer would laugh you off of his land. <laughs> if you said, "Oh, hey, you need to grow grass until you die," <laughs> what? No, I'm going to grow food to feed my family, sir. Please get off my porch. Like, <laughs> you, you know? <laughs> so, so it's, it's all about just like, we need concepts that work for everybody. And regardless of whether you own a lawn, regardless of whether you own a car, like you live in the city. And like, if you want to feed your family on a local level using the property that you live on, you know, we think that you should. Yeah. And that's why we really want to do this big push to get this put into code, because the only way that we know that we can ensure that everyone can do it is if it's written down somewhere, because otherwise it's kind of open to this interpretation. And as long as societal standards are kind of expecting us to do this lawn, that interpretation is still going to be that that lawn is beautiful. And it's only going to get hotter, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Uh, well, we're nearing the end of our time. This has been such a great, rich conversation. Time has just flown by, but I do want to let listeners know that there there is work to revise the land development code right now. I know that there was a meeting just on Friday about the whole issue of parking minimums, and there the city is working to revise, but not unfortunately eliminate parking minimums, um, so that they're not so that new businesses or or any bit or anything that you build in the city doesn't necessarily. Need need a huge parking lot out next to it right 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 um, and so thinking differently about our cities is what it's all about and we're so grateful to have had the co-founders of beargrass thunder with us today to help us do exactly that thank you so much to jody Dahmer, the chief and, feline you know, of beargrass thunder oh yes yeah yes, that is uh, that is our cat cc right here yep. she's she's plum tuckered out <laughs> thanks so much for having us we really appreciate it we've had thank a good time so talking to everyone yeah, it's been great. Thank you, uh, Hart Hagen, uh, host of The Climate Report at 7 o'clock every day on this station. Tune in, hear lots of great stuff, and let's talk. And uh, Election Connection with Ruth Newman is another great show. Uh, anything coming up you want to, either of you want to plug real quick? I'm just saying that we should be uh, we should be bold in what we ask for from our local government. All we go. want is a fair shake, a fair shot, and a fair uh, what else? Uh, a fair share. Yeah, that's all we're asking for. And uh, so that's what my most recent episode is about. What about you, Ruth? Well, the show that I just did this week, I would highly recommend. You'd have to go on our website and and see it as a podcast. It's uh, I interviewed the. Um, Secretary of State for the state of Washington, because that state has been conducting all universal mail-in 
voting for many, many years, yeah. since 2011, I think. And she is just incredibly knowledgeable about how they do it, how successful it is. They even got a national award for the security, wow. the efficiency, and the fact that they have so many voters in Washington that vote. Mm -hmm. And the uh, show that I'm doing this week, I don't know who knows Doug Lowry. Some of oh, you yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you all know Doug Lowry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm... Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> and yes, he's going to be on this week and he's going to talk about becoming a political candidate, all the obstacles that are put in your way, what you should and shouldn't do if you want to become a political candidate. Oh, yeah. awesome. Awesome. <laughs> and, and tune in to Sustainability Now this week. I interviewed the co-founders of Anti-Racism KY, OJ Alika and Terrence Sullivan, two great UofL alumni. We'll get on the station this week. So thank you all for tuning in here uh, to Truth to Power. We'll be back in your ears again in one week week's time.